bright-sighted. When I enter the courtroom, a child coming in to testify against his father. When youngsters come into courtroom, the judge is charged with a higher duty than it would with an adult. I see myself as, as your protector. And of course, if the person is testifying about uh, something involving their family, you know, the people that would support them would be on their side are not involved. So uh, I, as the court, as the judge, represent the entire system. And at that point, you've got to be very careful to, to make sure that the child is not booted around in the courtroom and, uh, and that you get to tell your story, your story, the truth as you see it. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers. Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? What's up? What's going on, everybody? I have quite possibly one of my favorite episodes. Actually, two, because this is going to be a two-part episode. I was recently back in Mansfield, Ohio, as you know from maybe last week's episode, and uh, which is my hometown, where I'm from, where my mother's murder happened, where all of this <laughs> wonderful things that have generated, <laughs> that are the genesis of this podcast, that are the genesis of my film, A Murder in Mansfield, yada, yada, Mansfield, Mansfield, get it? I was back there and I reconnected with some people, some friends, and one of the people that I reconnected with is the judge from my father's trial. Now, truth be told, I have not seen this man in probably a good almost 25 years. The last time I saw him, ironically, was I was selling him a pair of rollerblades when I worked at the Ontario Play It Again Sports. <laughs> that was a long time ago, and I used to teach customers how to rollerblade. I actually was a certified rollerblading instructor. For those of you that didn't know, didn't know that, and why would you know that? Because that is a random detail of my life. <laughs> so anyways, I reconnected with him and he has been somebody who ever since I have, you know, ever since I made the film, I believe we tried to connect with him. And, uh, you know, he is somebody who I've, I've really wanted to reconnect with in my life just to ask him some questions because here's the deal. I've never watched the trial. I've never read the trial. I don't know what goes on in it. I have a book of newspaper clippings over my shoulder here that I actually used to create the film A Murder in Mansfield, and I don't even know what those trial clippings say. It's wild. I know it's hard to believe, but yeah, I don't know a lot about it. So he really helped me fill in the blanks on some stuff that I didn't know ever went on. Uh, it's pretty wild. So I can't wait for you guys to hear the episode. But first, I want to get to this week's listener shout out, which is from R, just simply R, on YouTube. He commented on my video uh, about my father. It was a letter from my father saying my mother was involved in Chinese baby selling and pedophile ring. I think Chinese gold smuggling, like all kinds of weird, wacky nonsense. And he writes, Collier, this is what I have found. What's the difference between a fairy tale and a sea story? The difference between a fairy tale and a sea story is a fairy tale begins with once upon a time and ends with, and they lived happily ever after. The sea story begins with, this is no shit, and ends with, it's been screwed up ever since. Well, R, I don't really know what you're getting at. Am I the part of a fairy tale or a sea story? I don't know which. Um, I think it's probably the sea story. <laughs> I don't know. Um... All I would have to say is that um, this circumstance could be viewed as a sea story, but it could also be viewed as a fairy tale. Because here's the thing. 
I know this sounds cheesy and I know I say this a lot on this program, but this is the truth. I was just actually, this is, this is something I was just discussing yesterday with Amanda Knox. Yes, the Amanda Knox. I think she was arrested in 2007, wrongfully convicted for the murder of her roommate, was exonerated. They tried to retry her again. She was finally exonerated because overwhelming evidence after they caught the guy that did it, by the way, she was tried after they caught the guy who actually killed the roommate and went to prison. Nonsense. But one of the things that her and I were discussing with Tara Newell on our new podcast, Survivor Squad, she said something to me that really rang true with myself and Tara. And she said she considers herself to be really, really lucky. Lucky that she went through the circumstances that she went through and lucky that she was able to make the most out of it. Lucky that she had a family to support her and lead her through the trauma. And she's lived happily ever after. And now she has a new child. She's married. She's living a wonderful life. I would say the same thing. Like I would say that what may have started as a fairy tale then looked like it was becoming a sea story. And was very rocky and on very tumultuous and treacherous seas for a very long time. But I will say at this point in my life, despite a few things I like to change, but I would say for the most part, I feel like this is ending in a fairy tale. That might sound hokey, that might sound cheesy, but to be honest with you, it is really how I feel. I lived a, I live a very charmed life in a way that I... I'm grateful for what I have every day. And I'm grateful that I've learned, I've been able to learn lessons that I have in my life and share those lessons with you guys and share my process of going through these extraordinary circumstances, this unspeakable trauma and coming out, you know, fairly unscathed. I'm, I definitely have quite a few bumps and bruises on me, but I'm pretty much unscathed by life. I don't, I'm not cynical. I mean, I get down. I was down today. <laughs> I had some I had some bad news coming last week and, and it's just kind of keeps snowballing. But like, I just keep everything positive in my life. And because I really do at the end of the day, feel very blessed and grateful and fortunate, lucky, really, that I'm able to share my story with you guys in this medium, in this format. Speaking of, uh, if you are watching on YouTube, please click the like and subscribe buttons. It helps with the algorithm. Uh, if you are listening, please, you know, tell all your friends, download via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you wouldn't mind, please spreading the word about the show because it keeps growing and growing every single week. I want to give a special shout out to those of you that are supporting me on Patreon. I'm uploading a bunch of new content on Patreon. I'm doing monthly meet and greets with all of the patrons on there. It's a really cool thing. It really helps support the program. Patreon.com forward slash Collier Landry, your contributions go to support this program. They keep the lights on. They keep me doing what I'm doing to share this content with you and to develop content and get great guests like Judge James Henson on the program. This is part one of a two-part interview with the Honorable James Henson. Judge Henson, I want to say thank you so much for joining me on the program. And obviously there's been, it's been many years since I've seen you. I wanted to, to, to sort of talk to you about my father's trial and the case in general in Mansfield and what, um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. So what was your position in the trial? You I was were... a trial judge, essentially a judge as a referee in a, in a trial like that, the prosecutor, the defense attorneys, and the people involved are the uh, actors and I just keep it even. <laughs> <laughs> And so this was Richland County Common Pleas Court, right? Richland County Common Pleas Court. I was the longest serving Richland County Common Pleas judge in history. And I'm only 80. <laughs> wow. So when did you officially retire? 2014. And then I oh, worked a year, another year doing visiting judge. Uh, my term wasn't up until 16, but I retired two years early. Uh, judge Robinson took my place and... Uh, He's doing a great job, but uh, I came back came back for a year visiting judge. You know, and so at, so at the time, so we're in nineteen ninety, and I was obviously so young, right? And i I didn't really know. I didn't really understand what, what was going on as far as an adult. I just knew that my father had murdered my mother, mm -hmm. and obviously Dave Messmore believed me 
that my mother wasn't just a regular missing person or who just took off, but that something had happened, that my father had did something. Um, talk to me about, because my father was a doctor, it, 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 like my understanding is, you know, I made the film A Murder in Mansfield and I saw the spectacle that had happened. Talk to me about the spectacle of the trial and how big it was for Richland County. It was the biggest uh, trial event in our history that I'm aware of. Uh, people remembered back in 1953 when a, a husband and wife were uh, executed after a trial. They said, have we haven't anything like this since then. And that was old folks talking, obviously. Uh, every day the courtroom was full, 100 people in the courtroom, 250 uh, out in the hallway. We had a feed for them so that they could uh, they could listen in. And there were people enthralled by this uh, trial. Why do you think they were so enthralled? Why do you think that there was so much attention given to it? Because of the people involved, actually. Uh, I mean, obviously, when there's a, uh, a murder case, there's families involved and that sort of thing. But this was a, a case where a, a local physician was on trial and uh, he was well known. Uh, he was very uh, popular. Had many, many clients. I think he said he had uh, about 8,800 patients on his uh, patients list. And people were just intrigued about how this could happen or how it happened, why it happened. And they were there every day. And it got publicity all over the country, all over the world. I got a call from, from Rome, Italy, saying, you know, hey, I saw you on TV. Well, I got a call from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, good to see you. You know, that, kind of, that sort of thing. It got a lot of coverage. Big time. So just just the whole the whole experience of my father being a doctor and just people not quite understanding because, you know, I was obviously a witness and I was pretty isolated prior to the trial because of my involvement, right? And I didn't, my father had a lot of patients that loved him. So was there a sort of a divisiveness in the community between people who thought he was guilty and people who thought he was innocent? I'm not sure you'd call it divisiveness. There were a lot of people who wanted to believe that he was not guilty uh, until it was proven by, beyond any, any doubt. And uh, once that was proven, there were very little feedback from that. It's like, I can't believe that. I I, I know what's true here, but I, I can't believe it. But as far as uh, uh, divisiveness in the community, very, very little. So it wasn't a polarizing sort of situation. I didn't get that feeling. Now, of course, I, I was in trial every day. I didn't yeah. go out and talk to people about it. I, I couldn't talk about it. Jurors couldn't talk about it. So I don't, right, I don't believe I felt any sense of Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. What was one of the things that stood out to you in the trial with, there are a lot of people since I made the film, there are still a lot of people that believe he's innocent Mm -hmm. and they would approach me at screenings and say, oh, I'm really glad that your father got to tell you his side of the story. (laughs) And I, and, and and got to tell you the truth, you got to hear the truth. And I'm thinking to myself, did we watch the same movie? Uh, Did we listen to the same person? Why do you think it is such a disbelief? Is it because my father was a doctor and it was a healer? I didn't understand your question. Well, I guess what I'm wondering is, why would it be hard for people to come to grips with him being guilty? This trial, this case, 
was played up every day in the newspaper, on radio, and the local television station. And people were, I wouldn't say enthralled, but they were exceptionally interested in, it was a spectacle. You know, it was, a, it was the best show in town. And people, I'm really, and uh, it reminded me later of the O.J. Simpson fiasco on TV, you know, made for TV, essentially. Uh, so people are intrigued with what they don't understand and don't know. And uh, literally every day, thousands of people in, in Richland County tuned in to the uh, coverage that was on TV. And uh, they they may have talked among themselves, but they didn't talk to me because I didn't talk to them. So I don't yeah. know, uh, you know, I heard things from people say, can you believe that? I said, wait a minute, I'm sitting there in trial, you know. I can't tell you whether or not I believe it. But uh, they're just uh, intrigued, I guess, really much intrigued with what was going on. Now, when when I entered the courtroom, what was what was that like for you, a child coming in to testify against his father? When youngsters come into courtroom, the judge is charged with a higher duty than it would with an adult. I see myself as as your protector. And of course, if the person is testifying about uh, something involving their family, you know, the people that would support them would be on their side are not involved. So uh, I, as the court, as the judge, represent the entire system. And at that point, you've got to be very careful to, to make sure that the child is not booted around in the courtroom and... Uh, and that you get to tell your story, your story, the truth as you see it. And uh, we had quite a bit of discussion off the record. You know, here we're going to have a young young man come in and testify, and he's going to be treated, he is not going to be treated poorly by anybody. And uh, everybody agreed, that's, that's, that's fine. And the attorneys were very uh, responsive to that. Did you mean my father's defense attorneys? I'm sorry? You mean my father's defense attorneys as well as the prosecution? Oh, yes, yes. Robinson, attorneys Robinson and Whitney. And they were, they, they both obviously had children. And uh, they, uh, they treated you, they treated you as well as they possibly could have. And they, they did a good job. What do you think, as you're listening to me, and as you're listening to my story unfold on the witness stand, did you, as the, you know, obviously there was a jury of how many, how many members were on the jury? 16, 12 people on the jury, four alternates, uh, in case somebody has stepped down. And, uh, and that happened often, but in this case, after 19 days of trial, we still had 16 people there. Nobody want to leave for any reason. <laughs> That's really true. <clears throat> Do you ultimately think, you know, I remember having discussions with James Mayer Jr., who was a prosecutor, and I believe it was uh, Jerry Alt was the assistant DA. Mm -hmm. And I remember they were, it was optional for me to testify. They had made it clear to me that I didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. But I was not having that. I wanted to testify because I was so adamant about getting justice for my mother. Mm -hmm. What was it in your mind? How was the trial going before I testified? Judge uh, Jim Mayer was the prosecutor, and he's very methodical, very plotting, and it was dragging on really dragging on but that's the way that's his his manner uh his way of doing things uh, we were proceeding along and i don't remember where you were in the sequence of the, all the witnesses but i know there's a great deal of interest and uh 
concerned for you on the stand. And uh, you came across very well. You came across as uh, not matter-of-factly, but just plainly telling the truth as you knew it to be. It was a, it was you were very impressive actually, uh, with the uh, with the jurors and with the public and with me, because you sat there as literally a child uh, in the spotlight, and you didn't you weren't floored or any any uh, weren't putting on the show. You were very methodical, very uh, matter of fact, and uh, that was very impressive for I think eleven year old. <laughs> Yeah, I was well. I just turned twelve, so I was pretty. Oh, you twelve? Pretty, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was. I had just turned. You know, I, it's eleven, twelve. It doesn't matter at that point. But I think that I mean, when I testified at the grand jury, I was eleven. So, you know, I had, I was probably four months into my you know twelfth birthday. Um, a lot of people still to this day will look at my testimony, and they keep saying to me. Well, you know, you were just so good on the witness stand. How were you not coached by the prosecution? Well, I, I can answer that very quickly. You didn't need to be coached. Typical 11, 12 year old might have might have needed to be coached, might have been extremely emotional, uh, you know, upset. But you're very, uh, not matter of fact, that's, that's, that's too bland. You were just, you're very comfortable up there. You look like you're comfortable on the stand. You answered every question forthrightly, I thought. And it was very impressive to uh, to jurors and, and to the public. They were surprised that a 11, 12-year-old youngster could go through that, un, not unscathed, never, you never get uns, uh, go unscathed, but un, not, you didn't become discombobulated, any, even at all. And that's uh, that's very unusual for an adult, and for a twelve-year-old boy, that's very that's quite remarkable. Yeah, I I was terrified. By the way, <laughs> I remember. Had, yeah, go ahead. You had to be. You didn't know what was going to happen up there. That's what I was impressed about. You came up and sat down, and promised to tell the truth, and did it. Somebody might say, well, that was very matter of fact. That's that's almost a compliment. <laughs> you know, just, it was a, I was asked questions, I answered them. That, that's, that's what you're up there to do. You didn't try to uh, skirt questions. You didn't try to, uh, to uh, direct the testimony in any way. You were asked a question, you answered the question, and you kind of just sat back like, what's next? <laughs> Yeah, I was at least trying not to be prevaricative, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that struck me is, I get a lot of questions people said to me, did your father look at you in the courtroom? And I said, no, he wouldn't make eye contact with me. I stared at him, but he wouldn't look at me. He kept, you know, writing notes and mm -hmm. doing one of those things. What was, you know, obviously you're there to be sort of, as you said, the adjudicator of the, of the circus, if you will, <laughs> of what's going on. But what was one of the things that struck you about my father when he got on the witness stand as the, a judge? The fact that he got on the stand, his attorneys came to the bench and said, we have advised him not to testify. So we brought your dad up and I said, you, your attorneys have indicated you have no duty to testify. You don't have anything to prove here. And your attorneys with a great deal of legal experience are saying it won't be in your best interest to testify. But he said, no, I want to, tell, I want to testify. And again, I warned him specifically Anything you say up there, whatever you say up there, is going to be viewed by everybody, reviewed by everybody. And if you say anything that's not, that doesn't make sense in any regard, they're going to say, what's he trying to pull here? You know, we talked to the bench for quite a while before he testified. 
And he insisted he testified. And the attorneys went on, on the record again saying, we're, we're not objecting to testify. We're advising him not to. It will not be in his best interest to testify. And he, <laughs> he he's just, I, mean, I think a little bit, I think his ego kind of came into a little bit. I think he almost yeah. had to testify. And, and, and he should not have. I'm, now I'm being judgmental. He did not help himself at all by testifying. Do you think that ultimately his testimony on his behalf is what, on top of my testimony, probably sealed his fate? Or what was it? His testimony was so, I won't say outrageous, but it wasn't reasonable. And uh, we had the woman, the realtor, had looked into the house and seen the dirt stacked up. She had tested, she had talked to your dad downtown in, in Erie, where he told her he was going ahead with this idea of putting a basketball court in the basement. And she said, you can't do that. She saw him all covered with cement dust. And he said, what are you doing? She said, he said, I'm going ahead with that project because I think, I think that's a good idea. And of course she said, they won't work because the water is only 17 inches below the floor here. And the ceiling's only seven foot and a half high. She was six one. The, the realtor was six one. She said, I could reach up and touch the, the, the ceiling in the basement. And he was talking about raising it or lowering it. So he could play basketball, put a hoop in that's 10 feet high. And uh, it was just, she just said it didn't make any sense at all. And uh, he is adamant he's going to put a basketball court out there. See, you know, I've never really watched the trial. So when you're telling me this, I had no idea this happened. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that the ceiling was so low. <laughs> I uh. had no idea. I mean, so now it sounds completely outrageous <laughs> to me. Yes. That, because you'd have to have at least probably 15, 16 feet of clearance at a minimum at, to put a basketball least. hoop in there. At least. You know, something else about his testimony that really was outrageous. He testified that he had nothing to do with placing your mother in the floor. And then with Jim Mayer going on, he says, it must be that somebody, after I put in the new cabinets down there, somebody must have pulled those out of there and then pulled that rag carpeting out and buried her down there and then and then cover it all back up without without pulling into that grass carpet and you can't you can't pull it up at all. They testified that somebody must have done that because he didn't he didn't certainly didn't do it. And the jurors are sitting there looking at him like Wait a minute, that makes no sense at all. And I think that's where I'm saying he shouldn't have testified because he was sitting there, sitting there saying things that totally unreasonable. And the jury, one of the jurors kind of went, just kind of, he looked at her like, you don't believe me? And she looked at him like, no way. And it was really interesting. I mean, he was, he, he somehow, somewhere along the line, he kind of realized that I shouldn't be sitting here, but he'd gone too far. How many days did he testify? Was it two? I know I testified was, for two was a, for like a day. He was and on test, I would imagine it was a day. I, I do not remember. It was 32 years ago, 31 years ago. Of course. I don't remember, but I know he was on the stand quite a while. And, uh, I think the case went on several days, some days after that, but the testimony was in at that time. Yeah, he testified He, he testified after me, I know. Mm -hmm. and, and another thing is a highlight of the trial was when Sherry took the stand and Jim Mayer said, you were what, nine months pregnant at the time? She said, I was, and you were in a big hurry to, to get this place lined up so you could bring your, have your child there. And, and that's right, that's, that's absolutely right. And he said, did, 
Did you see any preparation made for you? Were there any baby beds there? Was there any furniture at all? Did you see any of, of Dr. Boyle's clothing there? And all of a sudden, she looks up and she looks at him and says, you rotten son of a bitch. And all of a sudden, it was obvious that that was the first time she didn't believe him. Really? Really. That actually happened, right? I'm four feet from her. And, and of course, he's sitting over there looking down. And he had made no preparations for them to move over there. And the idea was that they're going to get over there and move in right away because she was nine months pregnant. And uh, it really came out right then. He had no, no intention whatsoever to live in that house. Wow. Wow. So you're so really and so <laughs> that was Sherry Campbell. Yeah. And so she realized right then and there that she had maybe been had. She looked at him and with her words just said, You lied to me. You lied to me. And her testimony was in at that point. And he was uh he had no answer for it, not, no answer whatsoever, and, and it was uh, it was a I hate to say it this way, but it was a very trying moment. It was a highlight of the trial, right? Uh, because she, at that point, she had believed everything he had ever told her. He was going to marry her, take care of the baby, do all that sort of thing, you know. And all of a sudden, she realized that he had no intention to do that and made no preparations for that what's at all. And uh, that, was a, that was a very high or low moment in the trial, depending on how you look at it. I get a lot. I tried to have Sherry in my documentary to tell her side of the story. She ultimately obviously refused. She's not in it. Uh, because I wanted to give her a lot of people blame her and try to say that she was involved in the murder. Mm -hmm. It happened because of her. You know, I had some anger growing up, I think, which was understandable and a lot of confusion. But do you really do you really feel that, especially in a moment like that, that she was just another one of his victims? Yes. I mean, I made that I made that very, very quickly, but very, very much so. Very much so. And of course, her testimony and your testimony and other brought out that you were, were victimized. When you saw your mother's ring on her finger and then went back and told mom, you know, that was, that was traumatic. It was like, uh, you know, she, this girl is, is wearing your ring. Your, my dad gave your ring to her. And I'm sure that hurt your mother so, so much. And I'm sure that when she brought it up to him, he realized he had really, really, he had messed up big time. I don't know if that's had anything to do with what actually finally happened, but I, I'm stating the feeling now. I feel it had a great deal to do with what happened. Huh. So a lot of people feel like it was just circumstantial evidence that was against my father. There was nothing, there was no fingerprints, there was no blood, correct? You know, almost every case is circumstantial. But circumstantial evidence is as good as what you call real evidence. And oftentimes it's much better. You're... you're Dad said he testified that he did, he didn't do anything, but he did rent a jackhammer. He did jackhammer that floor up. He did put your mother in cold storage for five days, but using his using his ID. Well, I didn't know that he put well, my see, mother's <laughs> body in cold storage. Well, hey, she is now. 
gone. We don't know where she is. She's gone. And he's over there digging up the floor. And the, the real estate agent went over and saw the stuff stacked up like this on the floor, called a deputy and said, you know, you better get over and take a look. Well, he didn't right away. And then when he got over there, it was, there's no water dirt on the floor. There was new carpeting, new shelving. And he, he calls her and says, what are you talking about? She says, you think I'm lying to you? He says, no, but it's, it's just not there. There's, there's no dirt on the floor. There's new carpeting, new shelving. The deputy went to the judge with circumstantial evidence, putting error-based testimony together. And Pennsylvania, they don't grant search warrants on the basis of probable cause. They grant search warrants on the basis of reasonable suspicion. Now, this all happened before trial, and we had brought the, the prosecutor, brought the judge over from Erie, Pennsylvania, and testified by court to the level of proof and, and that sort of thing. And when and he issues their search warrant, but the police officer, because he didn't see anything with the dirt on the floor, that sort of thing, the first drillings were done in a driveway. Did you know that? No. The first drillings of the search warrant was in the driveway. Nothing was turned up. So he says, Well, we've got to go where she says that and they start drilling down and they pull up the, the, they scrape back some of this new carpeting that's down and then they see new new concrete down there and so they drill there and body tissue came out and yeah. of course that it was it was it was a done deal at that point yeah. but why why if he was going to rent a jackhammer why use his driver's license identified himself as the guy getting the the jackhammer. He, in the cold storage area, he used his ID. You know, why? So, was the cold storage area like in a hospital, like where you store a body? Cold storage, in the, you can put a whole cow in there. You can certainly put a hundred and ten pound person in there. But uh, and wow. he used he used his own ID, both to rent the jackhammer and to rent the room. This is cold storage room. You know what? I believe your dad was such a supreme egotist. He didn't think that anybody would ever believe that he would do such a thing as, as kill this beautiful woman. And I mean, he's a he's a very popular in his own mind. He's a very popular physician from a very prestigious family in the East. He told that he got his medical training from a prestigious university. Well, he got his medical training in the Navy. You, you probably knew that. Yeah. He came, he and your mother came to town under false pretenses. They had stories. She was a member of the Shaling Brewing Company in Philadelphia. He was from a famous university in the East. His mother was a model, a broad, a, what it called, where they walk out on and do their Yeah, yeah, runway model, yeah. Yeah, yeah, runway model. None of which was true. No, I mean, well, my just, grandmother did do some modeling, but yeah, no, I know what you're saying. You know, she was a seamstress, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but they, they told around that she was a very famous model in our younger days, and yeah. she did some modeling, but it was a, it was a, and they were immediately accepted. You know how difficult it is to get a good, trained medical doctor to come to Mansfield. In the old days, and I talk about the old days back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Mansfield was a booming area, one of the richest counties in the United States. People came there from all over to do business, to to set up their accounting businesses, set up their law offices, 
to work at the hospital. Today, almost all the people that work at the hospitals, we have more, we have many here, are from out of town. I mean, we have Ohio Health, Alveda, Cleveland Clinic, Akron Children's, and it goes on and on and on. But almost to a person, the people who work there don't live in Mansfield. I broke a finger two or three years ago, five, six years ago, went to the, uh, one of the quick, quick stops. Yeah. And they brought a woman, a woman doctor in from Akron to look at my broken finger because there wasn't anybody available here. So when Jack Boyle came here, claiming to be, you know, well-trained at an Eastern University, and of course your mom was gorgeous, and they just, they were accepted immediately in the higher class of the establishment of the, of the people living in our community. Remember the country club and all this sort of thing? And they were just, they were accepted for what they said they were because everybody wanted to compete. We needed, Did, do you know how much uh, the people in Erie had agreed to pay your dad to come over there and work? I think it was like $300,000 Well, it was first it was 162500 for 16 hours a week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He was going to maintain his office here and work over there. That's what it, they, he told them over there. And they actually signed a contract for one sixty two five for 16 hours a week. That's insane. Well, it's, that's who's making that money here. <laughs> of course, my theory, and it's all a theory now because it's over, that he thought, if Marie, your brother, buried in, oh, and all of a sudden, oh, gee, my, my, my children are back in Mansfield, my work's back in Mansfield. I know I signed a contract, but I can't, I, I've, I've got to go back home and just walk away, leaving body in the floor so maybe in your so you're thinking that he would have gotten out of the contract and just left the house oh, he, oh it's a nice house it was it was sold it would have sold in a second you know he bought it quickly and he knew everybody over there including the real estate woman who sold him the house that it was it was a, it was a good house looking out on the lake beautiful area it was a sellable property very very movable property i guess they call it in real estate he wouldn't have any problem selling it at all wow yes that's what the juror said collier right there is what the jury said wow there's a lot of layers to this onion <laughs> <laughs> right it's a uh, I, I thought about telling you, still doing the podcast, write a book. Yeah. I mean, my God. And or write a whole series of books. It's amazing what happened in that case. And, and, and of course, it's still going on because he's still in prison and, uh, and there are still people who said, gee, I don't think, I don't think it was proven to buy satisfaction. I talked to one of the jurors two or three years after the trial, and he was still a little bit upset. He says, gee, I don't think I could have ever found him guilty if he hadn't testified. <laughs> because it was circumstantial. He got on the stand and made it very, very very profound, actually, establishes guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And he did it to himself. He voluntarily testified after being told by his attorneys, don't do that. And that's what happened. I think at the end of the day, it's exactly what you said. It's hubris. I think that he thought he was smarter than everyone else. He, he knew it. He was smart. <laughs> he had testified in my court, I think, three times before, and he was excellent. And, and he was testifying in medical negligence 
cases. And they more or less said things like, you can believe that if you want to, but I'm telling you the truth over here, you know. Well, and the jurors ate it up because he was a very, very effective witness. But he was a very poor witness when he was talking about his own case. He should not have taken the stand. Not ever. But they did. Now, I'm not saying he would have been convicted because the prosecutor had just a great, great deal of evidence. But like the man said, I don't think I could have found him guilty if he hadn't testified. So I, I, it's all speculation as to what the jury would have done if he hadn't done, because he did testify. But uh, there was a great deal of direct evidence. Wow. That's what the jury, I've already pointed out, that's exactly what the jury said. They leaned back and said, wow. Because they were hearing a story that could not be true, but it was true. And they literally said, wow, just like you did. When they went to the jury room, there was no question in anybody's mind that he was guilty of the crime. And I think it came down to him testifying and saying things were just so far off base that nobody, nobody could believe him. He literally believed that because he was saying it, it had to be true. That's almost the definition of a patho pathological liar. Now, I'm not saying he was, but it's, it's characteristic. I'm saying it, it's got to be true. So he believed his own bullshit. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. He, he believed his own bullshit. <laughs> oh, hey, you know what? If he had, let's, let's just posit that her mother got pushed around and fell down and she's dead on the floor. If he had taken her body down around 71 south by Columbus and dumped her body in the ditch, come back, he had the cover of his mother being there, the children, you being there, it would have been a different case. It would have been a very difficult case to make. It might have been unmakeable. And even if they were able to prove that he's the one who did it, he could say, but here I am, you know, I've got my children here, I've got my mom here, and, and yeah, she fell and hurt herself, and I panicked. I didn't know what to do. So I, I, I dumped her body. I didn't kill her. I didn't, oh, no, I wouldn't do a thing like that. But uh, put yourself in my position here. I'm, a, I'm, I'm her husband, and now she's hurt or dead and I didn't know what to do never happened to me before how would I how would I how would I explain to my son and my little girl how would I explain this if 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 she's found here at the house laying on the floor and it is if he if he had planned this really well as opposed to the way he did he might not himself he plays out they don't convicted wow absolutely wow um <laughs> there's so much to it there's so uh, it's interesting when you look at least for me when I look back and even just hearing what you're telling me how many things have to fall into place to get a conviction? Absolutely. And that's the American justice system. Is, that's right. yeah. It's innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's very unique to our justice system, as flawed as it is. But all of these things, I mean, if you figure I don't testify and he doesn't testify, he probably walks. Not with what they had in this case. No, they had they they had him renting a jackhammer. They had him renting coal storage. They had all this. They had him 
tell him he's going to put a basketball court down there. They had all that evidence when it was an impossibility. But if he had just not done anything, left her laying on the floor, or if he had taken and dumped her body off of the side of the road somewhere, they wouldn't have had that evidence. They just wouldn't have had that at all. Did you hear the story that what your little baby sister said to, to the woman who was taking care of her? No. So how's that for a cliffhanger, huh? <laughs> uh, I can't wait to get into next week's episode and the second part of this episode where I learn even more stuff about my father and Judge Henson shares with me more info and and sort of insight that he gleaned from refereeing the trial as he puts it <laughs> and and sort of more shenanigans that happened in the courtroom and more uh things that he learned about my father and that the jurors learned about my father um it's going to be a really cool episode uh, this is you know as you guys are listening to the episode i am literally discovering all these things that he's telling me that i did not know and we're going to talk about uh, even a guy that maybe came up and and had some had helped my father to procure some girlfriends even. So there's all kinds of stuff that is coming up in this next episode. So on that note, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment. Please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today.